I'm just going to start recording, and of course, we can just uh, show sure. wherever's necessary. Um, but is there a place that specifically that you'd like to to start? Yeah. So perhaps, as you suggested, we should start with an introduction to CNC with mm. uh, with Gerge's video, um, just to kind of maybe just set the scene a little bit more basically. Um, we've talked in the past, haven't we, about this concept of control and calibration, which is uh, just a, a kind of approach to, at the moment, specifically Eido Zenken Renseite training uh, in order to achieve the quite specific technical goals of, of doing Seite correctly. Um, and it, to a certain degree, it chops away at some of the, uh, the more traditional aspects of Eido training. Uh, but it hones in on those which are really the core of what we do in Budo, which is technical exercise focusing on, on technical correctness. So um, one of the first uh, episodes and chapters I looked at was with regards to Nukitsuke. I did this short YouTube video about it, and I think I, I blogged about it. Um, because the, just the act of doing Nukitsuke well it's in, in quotes, uh, is, is quite challenging, really. If you look at this from a very high level, anybody can round their body forwards and throw the sword out, but this isn't uh, quite enough as, as, uh, as far as we're concerned. So uh, shall I share the video from my end? Sure, yeah. Yeah, just uh, uh, my commentary on just watching that video and having seen um, other videos that you posted or um, explanations on your blog, um, it really helps with uh understanding like phys physiologically like mm. how things work um i think that when you're saying comparing to traditional ways of learning where you're just in the dojo and you're just doing repetition and practicing and watching others um because we live in a time and especially out in the west when most um new students join a little older so already have a lot more kind of um, maturity and how they think about things. Um, it really helps, I, I think, a lot to understand where things are and gives another perspective. It's not like a replacement, but more adds a lot more color and, and richness to to our practice. Yes. Yeah. And and um, I think we're going to get onto this later when we talk about demystification and appropriation. Uh, I'm not convinced that uh, in the West, that across the entire spectrum of people who do traditional Budo, that we have a, an accurate image of what even we could call traditional training in Japan is like. Uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, I know that you've been there and, and I've been to Japan and, and seen what it's like in a dojo. And I, I think a lot of people would be slightly surprised that it's not quite the kind of um, neither the regimented and strict practice that you kind of get from watching karate movies. And uh and also not quite the, the mystical med meditative side of of uh, budo that we think is is prevalent in the east it's it's quite practical and quite casual and may have been like this for a, an awful long time we we have no way of really knowing yeah okay cool. uh, yeah. if you if you could give me oh, sharing give you, yeah yeah um, thank you so i should just ask is uh, this is a new headset it's it's good for zoom business meetings is is the sound quality okay for this yeah i can hear you nice and fine great thank you uh okay um, let me just find the i've got the video queued up and ready
Okay, you should be able to share. Okay, can you, is the video visible now? Yes. Great, okay. So I'll play this at normal speed first. Um, and then we'll have perhaps a, have a look at slow speed and this will kind of underline the, the key parts. Okay, that's probably about the most interesting side of it, really. So just to introduce, this is Gerge Vash from Budapest, one of my students. He's uh, will shortly be trying for sixth dan. Very hardworking uh, Budoka, and he's been pretty successful at European Championships as well. Um, and working from his his home dojo, a bit like his home office. Uh, so let's just see the Nikitsuki one more time. Um. Okay, so to, just to emphasize, it's really Nukitsuke that we've been working on the most. And this is where I, I really wanted him to go much, much slower. And this is him working slowly, actually. Um, you can see actually, when you actually have the finished result, he's concentrating now on doing it slowly. But this, let me just play it again at normal speed. You'll see that it's not actually unusually slow. I think this is pretty standard for most people, but this is him absolutely concentrating on going slowly. <laughs> Let's see at really slow speed. So first, uh, I'm going to point out some good things anyway, because uh, these are, this might be useful for people who are just learning either. Anyway, you can see that as Gerge is raising up on his hips, he's lifting his hips up, he's keeping his back straight. He's not tilting forwards or anything. Uh, left hand's a bit late at the moment, but hopefully that rectifies. It goes through. He's turning the sword. He's starting to turn the sword. Uh, when it's only drawn about halfway, which is what I've been asking him to do. Uh, the reason for this is, and it's a completely another part of the CNC, is that what people often do is they leave the rotation of the sword until there's only the Kisaki left. And then because rotating the sword takes time, uh, either of two things will happen. Either uh, they'll fling the sword out with the Hasuji not aligned, so they're rotating the sword in space as they go, which is obviously not an optimal way to do this. Or they stop drawing, rotate the sword, and then draw. So there's a stalling in the movements. You don't really get uh, a dynamic uh, sayabarare. You don't get this um, this johaku that is supposedly important in this. He reaches a point here. It does slow down a bit actually here, but you can see the right foot and Kiseki. The right foot, <laughs> it's funny, the right foot moves forwards before Sayabanare, then Sayabanare happens while his right foot's moving, and then approximately the time the Kiseki would be contacting the opponent, the right foot engages with the floor and stops. Let's just see that again. It's a little bit difficult to see. And then you can see there's some residual movement of the hip settling forwards so that the at the point of contact, the Kisaki is continuing, continuing to move forward slightly. It's not just swiping sideways. Let's just see that again. Yeah. So this is what I was really pleased with after spending quite a lot of time just doing this really gradual work. Uh, so when I mean, we take a CNC approach, um, is it how you're looking at things, how you're 
assessing like the different parts of his body moving, how you're uh, uh, instructing him. So where, where do you bring in that kind of unique perspective that's different mm. than a traditional way of teaching? Right. So what I do, especially as, of course, all this international teaching has been done over Zoom at the moment, so I have to get everybody to do their own coaching. So I set up a, a framework for them and say, what you need to do is do this new Kitske sequence really slowly. And you probably remember from our earlier conversations that for a number of times, you have to try to make sure that your right foot arrives before the Kisaki, perhaps even before Sayabanale. And then experiment doing this so that the right foot and the Kisaki arrive at the same time. And then do the experiment where the uh, Kisaki arrives first and then the right foot comes in just after. Now, this act of doing this, uh, it's, it's a kind of um, an iterative process of making you control something and then also measure it. So it's a, a, like a feedback loop of, of you trying to control a movement and then measuring and evaluating while you're doing it. So it has to be done incredibly slowly, otherwise you don't get to measure what it is that you're doing. Now, this act of even just doing this in three different ways is already developing some sophistication in your level of control and, and your level of monitoring and managing and measuring what you're doing. So it's purely a, a really this it's completely disconnected from the rest of the kata. The idea is to kind of just make you work on this one aspect and, and ask yourself, am I doing what I think I'm doing? Am I doing what I'm, what I'm trying to do? Am I doing what my teacher's saying I should do? So of those three timings, uh, probably two of those are actually valid, kisaki and foot at the same time, or foot arriving just before and then the kisaki just slightly afterwards. The other one is a kind of just a, a training experiment. But you, you need to be able to know whether or not you're doing these uh, correctly in the first place, if you're aiming to do one of them. A good idea to ask yourself which one you're doing, which mm. one you're aiming to do first, of course. But um, just, yeah, just this kind of iterative process of control, measure, control, measure. And this already kind of slows down everybody's kata yeah and makes them much more aware i i really like how you're explaining that um in terms of the model now we can apply it to so many different areas like just generalized and what we commonly see or i think um is that people either stick on the control side so i'm just going to do this one thing and i'm just going to try to do it really well um and they miss out on the collaboration uh calibration or the measurement mm -hmm. side of mm -hmm. let's try different ways of doing it and see Am I really controlling this one piece? Is this the only way of doing things? Uh, otherwise, other people are like, okay, try to do it fast, try to do it slow. And all they're doing is just changing the speed without seeing whether or not they're um, controlling it properly. Are they like doing everything correctly at those different speeds? So it's like, you can't have one without the other. When you combine them two, then you're really uh, like taking it in and trying to improve that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And this, got, this comes back to basic uh, theoretical and technical control where there is something called an open loop and closed loop control. Open loop is the one you said where people just try and do it as best they can at different speeds. There's no feedback. Closed loop is where you do close that loop and you do some kind of measurement. Um, in this case, I mean, we've, uh, we, you know, we've talked a bit about using um, videos and things like uh, Coach's Eye as an app. Um, having somebody even just standing there watching you, uh, using mirrors, not quite as good as videos, I, I feel. Um, but yeah, there's all these kind of techniques and technologies that we can use to close that loop. And it's important that we do really. 
um, there's some. It really comes back to one of the origins of CNC, which was a little lecture that um, Louis Vitalis Sensei in, in Europe gave to a Jodo group a few years ago that I was in, and he said, "My teacher said there's two ways of learning: you wait for your teacher to tell you what to do, and do it, or." you double your progress by teaching yourself and monitoring yourself and taking responsibility for your training and your teacher helps you. And this is kind of like, a, you know, this is the, that's a, an elevator pitch of CNC, really. Mm -hmm. You, you uh, can't rely on external all the time. One thing you just uh, quickly mentioned back there was that um, a mirror is not so good. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, I, I've discussed this with, uh, with quite a few people, really. And... Um, there's a dojo that I was going to before lockdown uh, in in London, which is the at the Aspire Centre. It's Kashua Dojo. Their entire half of the dojo is, is glass, uh, is mirror. Sorry, it's a dance studio. And it, on occasion, it, it's kind of really useful to be able to see yourself, and uh, you can do a little bit of evaluation. Uh, after a while, it starts to become a bit of a pleasurable experience, which isn't really good. Um, and you start to admire yourself and then after a while you then start to think actually i'm not improving at all i'm just getting used to looking at myself and seeing how pretty i look but the the main problem is that when you come away from using mirrored uh training a lot of your references are now gone you, you kind of you're adding a, a crutch to your training by having an immediate visual feedback but generally in training and in, in a kata execution in a, a taikai or an embu or a grading you don't have that immediate feedback so you're basically starting to set your your physical movements on something that's not going it's not going to be available to you generally uh so that's not i don't think it's particularly good training really it affects it on a much more uh fundamental basis it affects your metzke it puts your it, it kind of gives you a um a full set full sense of perspective you get parallax error uh, so you could be starting to overcompensate in certain positions and angles. Um, and it, yeah, you're basically doing also something else, which is uh, artificial, which is you're concentrating on a visual stimulus, which you don't, uh, and not concentrating on yourself in the kata. You, you, yeah, I mean, there's so many kind of things that it's skewing. Uh, it's it's really I think it's it's better than nothing. It's not better than video. Um, I, I had a, a chat with Paul Shin uh, a little while ago. Uh, I think we did it online, and we talked about the the, the term mitori geiko, and about how that's that's the kind of and, and I won't jump straight forward into misappropriation of language too early. Um, but mitori geiko, this kind of watch to practice. Uh, basically, me meaning look, tori meaning to take, and then geiko meaning keiko to train. Um, it's it's a really specific kind of thing, really, which is that you you watch somebody else, and then immediately you spot all the good stuff and, and the not so good stuff, and you do a little bit of mental evaluation. And then the, the key point that Paul said was that you immediately go and train and 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 implement and, and test and try and experiment. Just watching videos for themselves is going to have limited and possibly misleading advantage. Um, so, although looking at a mirror sounds like Mitori Keiko, I'd, I'd argue that it's missing everything that Mitori Keiko's got, which is actually somebody else doing doing the forms anyway, mm -hmm. and it's it's not as optimal as video. Yeah, there's a little piece there about 
the timing or the how quickly you get this feedback loop going like on a mirror it's immediate so then you're adjusting on the fly right for without even like then you're not really focusing on as you said yourself like what what is it that you're trying to do you're already fixing it yeah and you want to see okay what's wrong first and then um yeah adjust on the way exactly exactly i i uh I, as you know i've done a lot of training and teaching in, in poland uh and the guys there are, are young smart fit driven talented so it became a bit of a challenge for me to kind of just go and do a standard kind of ei or jodo seminar and what we started working on is is cause and effect cause and effect this cause and effect chain um because I mean, with people who are around third to sixth, Dan, if you just say to them, you're dropping the tip of the sword when they do furikaburi. Well, they're not doing that because they're not aware that that's uh, not supposed to be done. It's not lack of knowledge. It's almost certainly some kind of root cause that's happening two or three stages back. So like you said, doing a kind of instantaneous fix by looking at the mirror and fixing it, it's probably not fixing the problem at all. You're probably patching over the symptom when you come away from the mirror, it all comes back again. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have a good now overview of um, how what CNC is about, um, how it can applied for this one basic movement. Uh, do you want to go over another technique or another part of the first technique to? Sure, yeah, sure. Build on I that? Have, have to bear in mind that most of this more recent development has been uh, been done during Zoom sessions with my overseas students and friends. So. Uh, it's very much about people self-monitoring and having this kind of set of discrete exercises to work on. Uh, so I, I won't go on too much about my because that's almost certainly already been done in quite a lot of detail already. Uh, Ushiro, um, there is a there's a necessity, firstly with CNC, that you sign up to a certain degree of um, ways in which the form should be done where there's already a little bit of flexibility let me give you an example in number two Shudo, there are uh, some teachers who teach to hold the sword in as you're turning until you get to about 90 degrees and then you draw out in that last quadrant and then there are some teachers who say no you're supposed to be drawing and turning at the same time so the first set of teachers are thinking about this koryu aspect that there's somebody sat next to you which is applicable in, in Shindinryu, I, I happen to know, uh, that you don't hit the person next to you first. But uh, as, far as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I, I subscribe for Seite to drawing and turning at the same time. It's just that I, I see Ushiro as being uh, a mirror image of Mai. It's just that you start facing the other direction. The rest of it should be as close to Mai as possible. So it's a gradual draw. Once your hands are on the sword, you should be starting to draw really you don't you don't stand with the hands on the sword while you're rotating so I, I i beg people to kind of subscribe to that understanding first because it makes the rest of the of the cnc uh interaction a little bit easier to understand so the problem is that with ashiro for example people turn they stall in their turning with the blade and they get to a point where they've completely turned and they've only got two-thirds of the blade out so then the body stops and waits for the sword while you lunge and then finally get the sword out and this is really common uh, uh i did as well uh, my all my students do it so it's it's something that's worth kind of really focusing on and one of those uh practices is uh while you're turning you have to stop at, at for example 
arbitrarily every o'clock. So you, you stop at 12 o'clock when you first come up, then turn to 11, 10, da, 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 and you must be able to stop yourself and control your posture and have the right amount of draw at every point of this rotation. Mm. Now, why is this important? Part of the problem of why people are not drawing the sword is that it is that it unbalances them. So they're trying to maintain stability while they're turning. Why are they unstable? Because they're trying to spin themselves on their knee without using both legs. Their, uh, let me just get this right. Their left knee is lifting. So they're using, uh, they're on their right knee. They're trying to use their left knee to basically, sorry, the left leg to spin them to get some angular momentum. Uh, to get them around quickly, but of course this is out of control. Whereas what you should be using is is kind of combination of supporting yourself with your right hip and your right knee. Uh, of course, your right foot doesn't really do anything except trace a line on the floor, but this is providing a a weight balance. So it's by keeping in contact, you're loading a little bit of weight on there, and it's sending signals to your brain saying I'm in this position. Whereas if that right foot is off the floor. You, you lose some of your perspective as to whether you're turning or lunging or anything like this. With the right foot there, like a stylus, it's keeping track. And then the left side of your body is responsible not for spinning you, not for rapidly spinning you around out of control, but by graduating, uh, what's the word, um, actuating yourself around. So it's a, a thing that can stop you at any time and stabilize. And that's the purpose for doing this exercise. Um, and most people surprise themselves that they get to, for example, nine o'clock and they're already leaning forward or kind of tottering around a little bit. And this exercise is easy to do. It's, it's not particularly destructive on the legs. Um, and what it should lead to is that by the time you've turned just before your right, your sorry, before your left foot, before your right foot moves first, then your left foot, um, you should only have really like the. You should, the sword should be rotated with only the uh, kisaki mm -hmm. left in the sire so that the, eventually you can do this dynamically and you can do it with acceleration and there's no there's no stop here you go you turn straight around bang just like my should be where there, there shouldn't be a stop at this point here while you rotate the sword position the knee and go it should be a, a accelerating movement yeah, uh, just I, the, the I can really mind. see um why this is a uh, why this breakdown is useful uh, one, like as you said before, it's not like people don't realize that they're not drawn enough because they have to continue after they've fully turned around. Um, also, if you were to give this uh, exercise to someone who just wants, like, is subscribed to, like you were saying, the core you version where you turn and then it's more of a direct straight draw rather than mm. gradual, mm. Um, that you don't get these little points of feedback to say, where is it that I'm really struggling? Like, where's my left hand? Where's my right hand? Um, so it would almost be like, even if, and I think that's what CNC right now is about to, even if it doesn't, if what you're trying to work on is not exactly what's correct or what you're being told, it's a point that you can use to practice, to see you like to figure out where is it that you're, um, lacking control, lacking balance or something like that. So even if someone is supposed to draw straight ahead, they should still practice this, practice this gradual turn because it gives you a lot of feedback along the way absolutely it's, it's a general approach to all aspects of ei um and you're right i think if somebody starts to draw from the from the first quarter then it's it's still applicable it's still usable um it's just slightly it's done on a slightly different basis yeah
cool. Um, We've uh, so obviously far covered Nukitsuke um, a couple of times. There's a lot of draw, and I guess that is the most important part. Of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Guy. Actually, in, interestingly, there, there's a, uh, and this isn't exactly CNC. This is just kind of, I, I guess, learning by experience, um, and and that's the point that most people on a Shiro have problems doing the Furry Kaburi and bringing the right knee up to the left foot, and uh, you know they they wonder why. <laughs> and the answer is really simple it's because everybody spends all their time doing my when actually we should be spending if you if, if you sort of in a, in every practice session if you do uh you think oh my is really important it's basic so I'll, I'll do my 20 times i'll do the other cutters five times really you should be doing a shiro 15 times and my five times <laughs> because we never we never really give a shiro it's it's fair airing and this this problem of moving the leg up is purely exercise it's purely that physically uh, the muscles on the which are being used for a shiro are nowhere near as developed as they are for my uh, and we've got to work on that but you know it, part of uh, i think the basic techniques in both ei and jodo are left and right-handed or left side right-sided in order to so you don't end up one side being overdeveloped and the other side being weak well a shiro we can see that that as being we can accept that as being uh, one of those exercises as developing the left side. We should use it uh, more than my now, because almost certainly the mileage spent on my is about a million compared to a few yards with a shiro at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's a really simple message. Practice a shiro. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Okay. Moving on to Ukinagashi. Um, I guess there's not really that much to say about it, really, except that. Oh, except except the, except the Kitsuke, except the draw, <laughs> uh, which is again, I think, it's I mean it's it's one of the hardest parts of the kata, especially as this is supposed to be done quite suddenly. And uh, when I was in uh, Spain, Madrid, just before lockdown started, um, I spent a bit of time with with the guys there, with um, learning to do a shiro while sat in a corner with a wall in front of you and a wall to your left. Now, I'll explain briefly what that's supposed to do. Of course, it stops you from drawing outwards and it stops you from drawing forwards in towards the opponent because none of these are optimal. We're trying to get the right hand to basically finish to move directly upwards and finish above the right shoulder. So having some walls there really helps. And it really points out to you that you're relying on having that space available to you to also maintain your balance. So a lot of people, when they come up, if I, if I demonstrate it this way, a lot of people, when they come up, they're already lunging forward slightly here, using basically only their, mostly the power on their left leg to stand up, which is why it takes so much time and it's difficult. And this tends to make you go out and then come back again, which is not obviously the optimal way to do this. Having a wall there stops you from drawing it. It really demonstrates how bad your balance is and where you, you've mistakenly put your weight distribution um so we did that quite a lot and uh it's it's hard actually it really is hard because you expect to be able to move freely in Okunagashi, and actually i i think to do it well you've got to limit yourself and this includes turning and trying to ram your sword forwards here which is also not the right thing to do of course um so yeah i mean this is really a shortcut for cnc is just sit yourself in the corner and do this um, there was a, another thing about this, which was I wanted to actually discuss with you. It's a little bit of a sort of revelation for in the last few weeks that I've had 
in sort of experimenting with CNC, which is um, as well as being able to as well as being able to forward control and anticipate what you're going to do. I've I've found things which are worth writing into CNC, implementing into CNC, which help you to do fault finding retrospectively. And one of the retrospective fault finding things, which is not fully developed, so I won't go into it in too much detail, but you can be pretty sure that if somebody is drawing outwards when they do a Kanagashi at the beginning, in this position here, their grip is not going to be correct. The Hasuji is not going to be correctly aligned. And this is to do with how drawing outwards forces your wrist position to adopt a certain position based upon the way that we do Maya. It tends to make you adopt a kirite grip as you do this, mm. which means when you come up, the edge is up and not not like this. Uh, and this is, you know, this links back to kind of uh, the, the behaviors that we end up doing by doing lots of EI practice and how we've got to break some of those behaviors because they're not to be done in certain kata. Um, so, yeah, it was, I just thought, oh, actually, this is another check we can do. If somebody finishes off, you, if you take a photograph of somebody and the hasuji is up at this point here, you can be fairly sure that this has happened at this point here. This is where it originates from. Mm. Yeah. So trying to see if I got that right. Um, right now, most of what we're talking about in terms of CNC is thinking about if I were to do this movement, then how do I do it correctly by breaking it down slowly, doing it slowly, breaking it in chunks and seeing at each point is everything where it should be um, and uh, am I still balanced, that kind of stuff. This is yep. something where you take the reverse and after you've completed something, if it is in a different position, then you pull back and then break it down and find where is it that created the, the cause of this. Exactly this, yes, mm. yeah, yeah. And uh, although CNC is, is supposed to be about a general theoretical approach to training, of course, there are specific things that we've already spoken about. Um, and that's this Ukinagashi thing is one of them where you can say, if they're there, probably that yeah mm. yeah well it seems to be like um you, you're articulating it now as like a breakthrough but it seems like it's your approach to developing cnc in the first place was you noticed something someone was doing here and then you're thinking back to okay where did it happen oh okay so maybe it's when they're rising during nukitsuke maybe he's not drawing far enough with the left hand or something and then you started thinking oh, what are the activities that i can create to check to see if that's really the case and then fix it. Yeah, you're almost certainly right. It shows that you've got a much more ordered mind and impression of what this is than I have. Whereas well, I'm I don't scatty. have to be in the detail. I just have to listen to what you're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on to number four, guess what the, 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 the main hitch is on, on number four? Drawing. Drawing, wow. Yeah. You've, you've been here before. In fact, uh, I think for four and 10, um, for Shiho Gideon Skate, we can kind of use the same uh, approach, really, which is uh, now none of this is really documented in the Seite manual. This is based upon uh, you know, a few years of experience and listening to, to decent sensei and kind of drawing an impression as to what how these kata should be done. So, uh, my appreciation of number four is that basically uh, this kata ultimately needs to be needs to be able to be performed quickly and smoothly because the enemies are close uh, 
So you don't have time to do uh, long drawn out movements. Everything's got to be done quick. Doesn't mean you practice quickly. Just means the ultimate aim is to, is to be able to do it quickly. So uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a potted history of why I think this. Kyoto, 1997, I was fortunate enough to be in Ishido Sensei's group. Uh, there was lots of other groups and much more senior sensei there. At one point, somebody asked him a question about how he, why he, uh, why did, why did forms the way he did them, and he, I, I can't remember what the exact thing because this is going back quite a few years, but he said, uh, "Watch this." He sat down to do number four, and he completed it in like, I think maybe one and a half seconds. <laughs> Uh, and everybody, everybody in our group sort of stood there with our mouths open going, ah, that's why we're doing Iido to do it like this. And it was mind blowing, really, because, you know, you get this impression that, you know, Iido is like a sword version of Tai Chi, where everything's really slow. But seeing him do this, it's like, oh, my God, this is this is what this is what Marsh, this is what the kind of movies are like. So anyway, uh, this echoes through to this idea that scarte should be done expediently and quickly. Now, uh, there's lots of things that can go wrong. Uh, a few of my friends have got holes in their left biceps to, and in their forearms to demonstrate this. So it's got to be done quickly, but reliably as well. How do we get from here to here without breaking the sire? Guilty. Uh, without sticking it through your arm? No comment. Um, now, the, the problem is that you're trying to control the sword and do some kind of dexterous movement with it when it's and trying to do it quickly and it's liable to move around. So the first thing is that I say to my group is, look, could you do this without moving the right hand forward anymore? You've hit the opponent. Imagine they're solid and they didn't move back very far. What could you do from here? Because if you have to draw the sword forwards, then you're probably going to have to bring it back again. If you draw the sword up, you're probably going to have to bring it down. If you draw the sword down, so all these extra movements are not helping you to get to this position quickly. So there's something that we should do to uh, restrain ourselves from adding these extra movements. So again, we have to do this slowly because you can end up breaking the sire quite easily. So I got people to do it and said, right, do this against the wall. See how much forward movement you actually need. So do this part here. Try and use your hips slightly to get the extra bit of sire bicky using the hip turn. And if you've got two centimeters left, one inch left in the sire, then you can move your scarf forward two centimeters when you do this. But basically, so I'm going to have to grab some more props. Patrick. Where the Skagashira is here, sorry, where the Monouchi is here, there's no reason why when you're doing this technique that at the moment of Saibanari, this only has to go up. It shouldn't really go backwards and forwards or up and down. From the right, from the strike, right hand should draw to a point where this, now the Kisaki gets released, it just does this. So it's, it's about eliminating all other movement, which doesn't, which stops you from doing that. Um, and uh, I've, you know, I've already described really what that requires, limiting your ability to move, doing it slowly, looking at what you're doing, um, not doing anything funky either with the timing, for example, uh, I'm sorry, this is only my opinion. 
because I, I know that some people teach to kind of draw the sire back without doing any looking or turning and then to do this all at the last minute. I'd say this is good to teach beginners, in my humble opinion. It's good to teach beginners this to get the basic idea, but this doesn't really help you to advance. I, I think that uh, just like all the catters, sire banade means something explosive and sudden. So uh, at some point, I've moved away from doing one, two, and started to rotate the sword and rotate the hips so that this could all land in one fluid movement. And I, I think personally, that's the, the way that I want to do Iido, and, and that's what the CNC exercise is designed to do. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I'm seeing a lot of like how we're building on um, each kata, but reinforcing those primary messages of CNC. Like when you were talking about Nukitsuke for Mai, it's like you're drawing and turning, and you have to figure out at what point do you start doing both at the same time um when we're so at this point it's the same thing like you can do one motion and then the next one or you can figure out at what point do you start and then where do you end up and then break it down into those chunks like uh in ushiro where it's like one o'clock two o'clock three o'clock uh at each point you can check yourself and get that feedback the yes. other the other mm. commonality i've seen through these four kata so far is with um ukenagashi where you're using the wall to constrain a person from doing something that's wrong. So normally we are just saying, okay, why don't you just do it correctly? And, but for beginners, like, it's not like they don't know, it's just that they can't do it yet. But by putting this hard physical constraint of a wall that prevents them from leaning forward or prevents them from um, pushing, drawing more with that sword in Tsukate, uh, you're giving them now mental room to focus on the other aspect of it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it almost kind of um, takes away some of the the uh, the brain load they have to do because they no longer have to worry about stopping moving the right hand forwards. They can't move it forward, so they have, they have to concentrate on everything else. Yeah, which is so counterintuitive because when we talk about mm. when you're introducing CNC, it's like break it down into so many things and think about this, doing this slowly, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, it's actually removing a lot of these other aspects of EI because like you know when you're thinking about a kata it's just the sword and your body but there's so much else that's going on that you're not aware of mm. so having to force this focus it's actually clearing up that mental space to to be able to work on it yeah yeah uh, there's something else that, that that came to me just as we were talking actually especially about skate um perhaps a, a good way to visualize this is imagine a, a two-lane highway uh, sorry, a four-lane highway which gets gets narrowed down to two to two lanes. If the if the cars are coming along at a in, in a in a kind of gradual way, like two, you know, not not the whole highway full at the same time, they can gradually kind of move into two lanes, and you, you barely get a reduction in speed. It's just the distances between them starts to close up a little bit, but you don't get blocks. But if all the traffic for a whole hour gets released at the same time, then inevitably they're going to stop when the when the highway uh, constricts and then it's going to actually be harder to try and coordinate cars through this and you end up with all the traffic stopping and uh, people trying to sort of edge in and, and all this kind of stuff um, this kind of happens actually this this should be refined by cnc so as i said back in when i first started doing this that we're not actually very good at um, multitasking even though we think we are we're actually really really bad at it uh, and what we do is in fact we identify other things that we think we're doing well and think oh we're good we're good at multitasking because i've done six different things this morning but actually it would have taken 
less time if you've done them all in serial. So Skate, for example, this idea about doing hit, draw, and then all of this, all you're doing is you're removing one of the really easy bits to do over a long duration. And now you're doing five difficult movements all at the same time. So this mm -hmm. actually becomes cumbersome, clumsy, and slow. Whereas what you could be doing, is, as you already mentioned about rotating when to rotate the sword, you could be eliminating some of those other tasks in this sequence and starting to draw the hip. So that actually at this point here where you get cyberbanale, this is really simple. And this is the bit which really requires coordination. You've spread your traffic over effectively over two lanes over a number of miles now. And you're much more likely to be able to do this smoothly without putting the sword in your arm or breaking the sire. Mm -hmm. I'm not a good example of non-breaking of sires, by the way. I've broken quite a few doing this. <laughs> yeah. So I think we've gotten into a good flow in terms of where this conversation is going. CNC will cover absolutely more things than just the draw, but based on timing, based on our order right now, let's just focus on the draw now for the next few kata, and then we can have another conversation about where CNC can be applied in non-drawing stuff. Sure. So moving uh, on to number five. Five, uh, I, I referenced my blog post on Kesegidi, the thousands of different ways of doing it wrong. Um, uh, yeah, I, I won't spend too much time on this because I think the blog actually speaks for itself much better um, if, if maybe we can link it into this. Um, but basically, uh, again, this is a kind of problem of the, of the right foot and the sword all being kind of coordinated at the right time so that we don't get the uppercut happening with one position of the enemy and the downward cut happening at a different position of the enemy. So the, the rationale of the cutter is that the enemy doesn't really move significantly. So these two cuts should basically cover the same space. Um, this requires, wow, this was so long ago, I've almost forgotten what it was. Uh, this requires- That's the one with the animated GIF, right? Where you marked that's right. where the tip was and up. For one person, it's like the same here for another person, one, and then the next one is like quite a bit further. Yeah, it looks like a shark's fin, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, on the on the on the on the removed one. But this was um, I mean, it's gonna sound boring when I say slow approach to it, thinking carefully about the timing of the draw, then stepping back and saying, okay, if the draw's gotta happen, then when do my hands need to go on? And then you start asking questions about what constitutes the second step. What constitutes the left foot going forwards? Is it the beginning of the left foot going forwards? Is it the passing of the left foot past the right foot? Is it the placing of the left foot? Is it putting weight on the left foot? You've now got an idea, which is the, the, the word step the left foot forwards can refer to four or five different points in time. And that's important because actually my teacher, for example, um, for all the standing forms, he, he uses approximately four different categories of that timing and they're used they're distributed all differently throughout Seite Gata so for Kesegidi for example is that as your left foot starts to move forward your hands go on but by the time your weight goes on your left foot you should already be in this position here more or less it's slightly I think it's uh, pretty much the same from Rotazuki completely different for Sample Gidi uh, much much later for Gamanate um, different, slightly differently sequenced for Soetazuki, much later for number 10, Shihogiri, much more uh, smoother and just in sequence for the left foot for Sogiri, and of course, 
suddenly for for number 12 so um yeah it's quite interesting that of course number 12 is completely different in terms of putting your hands on where the left foot goes forwards but this idea of these words place your hands on the skirt as the left foot moves forwards is not quite as simple as uh, as it's written uh, you, you mentioned four categories did he is there like a name for each one of them or like a description uh yeah um let's see um just a second in japanese you mean or in english uh well you could start with japanese to remember it and then try to translate it <laughs> i'll start in english actually it will take too long okay. for me to, to translate but uh but um let's see so uh, uh freeing the left foot to commence the step so let's say step commences passing of the left foot past the right foot sorry this is going to sound like i'm just uh just talking english letters uh final positioning of the left foot is category three and then loading the weight onto the left foot is category four oh. mm. but uh, as if i'd quickly um grab the okay so it's not like well, i thought it was like just different ways of doing it but it's different timing no, no, of the sequence no. Sure. It just, just, yeah. 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 It's just this, when, it, when the, when the Sate manual says, um, if I can, if you just give me a second, just to find, uh, Kesegiri, uh, it says, so it says when the left foot has been placed quickly, put your hands on the sword. So, to be honest, this isn't exactly the way that I practice, <laughs> uh, which is sounds heretical, really. But um, I think even within the Seite manual, if you when the the official delegations from the Zen can come across, they're also a little bit flexible in their approach to how this is read. Um, but yeah, I mean, for example, in Japanese, there's dashita toki, which means when the when the left foot has been placed, dashi nagara, which means doing something while your foot is going forwards, dasuto doji ni. So this means, uh, I mean, you probably better speak to your wife about the difference between dasuto doji ni and dashi nagara. It's in terms of seeing the difference, it's probably not much in it really. Um, and I don't really understand it that well myself between nagara and todoji ni. Uh, yeah, so it's it's complex and interesting, mm -hmm. at least. Um, but yeah, I think at some point you have to kind of say, well, that's the book. But actually, to progress from here, I, I, I can't just follow the letter of the book because this is, um, as Ishido-sensei says, the book tries to go in the huge, into huge amounts of detail in some parts of, of, of Kasa's, especially Yukonigashi. But then... It, it, some parts it doesn't so for example he asked people to verbalize verbally explain how you walk and this kind of takes time you say well if i'm standing with my feet together first i load the weight onto my left foot and i lift my right heel and moving the foot across the floor i then place the heel on the floor first and then i put the toes down it's like no nobody has to describe how you walk um so there has to be, you know, the Seite EI came first and then the manual came afterwards to help people to, to memorize it. Um, I think following the letter of it can be a little bit restricting sometimes. Mm -hmm. <sighs> now, what's generally a, well, a theme of this conversation and this type of thinking is that um, it reminds me of what uh, Thomas Edison kind of quote where I didn't. I didn't fail like a thousand times. I learned a thousand ways of not how not to <laughs> fill the light bulb. 
And the overall focus on being correct to the book will like, will just be like very narrow in your view. But the goal of this type of discussion is to let's learn all the different other ways that you could possibly screw up or you could possibly do this correctly Mm. and still get with the same result. And there's just, again, much more richness to your practice and much more like area for you to learn from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I tried learn, learning dancing once. I, I went to a Lindy Hop class and also, a, a um, what's the other one? The, the um, what's the very rigid dancing? Uh, mm-hmm. ah, I, I can't remember, but I was amazed as to uh, actually how badly it was taught in, in some of these classes. And I just thought there's, there's no kind of instruction about how to get there in the first place. But I guess people who, who just, genetically can't dance shouldn't go to lindy hop classes <laughs> okay so uh, that was yeah. number five let's uh everyone go reference the blog i'll try to put a link somewhere on the video uh Great. so let's move to number six so number six I, again we've actually discussed the draw quite a lot in the part in past uh things haven't we about making sure and that this will cover number seven slightly as well in a slightly different way that you, you basically need to create a position where you've finished rotating the, the sword in your hand. So it's in a, in a proper kirite grip or nukite grip, really, um, before you get side banana. And uh, that's quite important that you don't draw with the hasuji vertical and then expect to kind of make this angular change while you're moving the sword through space. That's not really the way that you're going to get a dynamic draw. and Without that, without being careful of that, you end up with RSI, a bouncy kisaki, a sword that doesn't cut because you're not following the hasuji, um, and a whole raft of other problems where you're basically maybe even flicking. Um, and, and again, these are only, like, like you said, the, these are kind of checkpoints to help you to do it whatever way you're doing it. So if you decide to do it like this, then this is fine. You can still use this kind of approach to doing preparation early and checking or if you choose to do it like this then this is also fine it's it's entirely up to you how you do it but it's about making sure you're optimally set up to do it um also making sure that your uh, the the limbs which are assisting like the the elbows are properly aligned uh weight again weight distribution is correct Blah, blah, blah. In the end, we want to get to a point where we can accelerate into this and, and show speed and power and suddenness. But everything's got to be in line first. And all of your body positions have to be properly assisting you to do this. Mm-hmm. So for these, like if you're saying combining number six and seven, um, in before when we're doing something like Nukitsuke and Mai, the feet are, you're, you're on the ground, so it's a little more stable. You're still trying to match the front foot timing. But as we just had that conversation about number five, where there's all these different parts where it could happen, um, where where do you see um, CNC really needing to come in? Like when you're looking at students, a common error, is it more in the hands trying to create the angle too late because you haven't rotated or the foot timing or how would you combine those two? Uh, perhaps I would see the, the, the biggest probably assistance that CNC gives here is the, the, the plain instruction, which is stop trying to accelerate, stop trying to do it fast, mm. forget speed and power, 
and suddenness and all this other stuff, all this johaku, kanku kyojaku. Forget all this. Clear this away from your from your workbench and study what the geometry of the technique is. And thinking about this, thinking about a kind of skeletal structure moving in 3D space. And you're able to wind the, the story forward, the videos forward slightly and back again. And let's but make sure that you understand what that skeletal structure is supposed to be doing um, at certain points of time re relating to the footwork and, and the sword work and all this kind of thing. Um, you can't coordinate this while you're also thinking about speed and power. Mm. That's that's really, I mean, as we've discussed before, that's almost the opening paragraph of CNC, which is clear your workbench of this. It's it's not helping you now. It comes later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I hear most often when we're talking about that angle of the sword is do this motion to create the sword angle. But this is also thinking about, um, yes, the sword has a certain angle, but what is your body angle when the sword is coming out? Mm. And like you're saying, we could look at what's happening with the wrist, what's happening with your elbow, what's happening with your shoulders and all that stuff. Right. And everybody's going to be doing it slightly differently, of course. The, the ability to rotate the upper body compared to the lower body will vary on your own personal flexibility. So providing you know how you can do it. So let's take uh, Murata Zuki as, as an example. When the left foot's forward, and this naturally incurs the left hip to go forward, your right upper body needs to, the right side of your upper body needs to be forwards. So there's already a twist going in this. Do you know whether or not this is turning your feet? That's important. You could be losing your balance and basically falling into the next step because you're not aware that you're turning yourself so much because you think this is important to do this. But if this is upsetting everything else, and you end up lunging into the, the, the next technique, then this is a problem. So this is why I say stop, look, video, check. And there isn't there can't be a specific set of uh, of rules and procedures for everybody to follow to do this because everybody will do it differently. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, so that's uh, six and seven. Uh, Can I jump off of Nukitska for for a second? Because there's sure. a yeah, there's, there's a there's good part of yeah. number seven which is okay. worth which is worth working on. Cool. So what I've done my group recently is to look at the second cut. So uh, in my uh, appreciation of of Seite Yaido. Basically, the second cut starts from here. It doesn't start with a kaburi stop and then cut because this is supposed to be a sudden cut. And if you think about how all of the other cuts are arranged in in previous kata, there is no pause in furikaburi. Furikaburi is a is a, a a point you go through to execute the cut. So obviously, this is really important in my so important. It's written in the Chakaganten, which transfers into uh, Shiro. Uh, some people do create a kind of strong point here for Okunigashi. This is fine. Skate, ideally, there should be a fluid, a fluid action, but this is most prevalent, most uh, obvious in in uh, in Sabogiri. So if you watch most people on, on videos, you'll see that this comes to here. Now, let me demonstrate the, the standard way first, which is the left hand comes up. This sword's trying to travel in this direction with a, an angular momentum happening here. The left hand's trying to travel up. In terms of uh, ve velocity or movement in this dimension, the left hand isn't moving at all. It's only going up. So when this meets the sword, this is almost certainly going to stop. And then you're going to cut. Or more commonly, 
the left hand will aim for its correct position, will end up sliding through, mm -hmm. and you end up cutting with your, your hands together. It's an inevitable part of physics, I'm afraid. So what can you do? Well, as a, as a few people I've been training with this week said, you want a, a gradual docking process of the two spaceships meeting and moving at the same velocity at some point, which means the left hand can't go up like this. We need to slightly compromise some parts of the posture, some parts of the standard way you do for Rikaburi to do this. I'm not suggesting this passes in front of your eyes here, but some, some way your left hand needs to go further back than its normal meeting point so that it can start moving forwards, catch the sword, and not interrupt this, this, this movement that the right hand is generating. This requires a, certainly a compromise of posture, actually. I've, I've found doing this myself that there's a slight feeling that you have to lean back slightly into this in order to give the left hand space to, to go behind you to catch it without making it look like you're kind of doing some sort of yoga, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all. When looked from the outside, it shouldn't look unusual. It should look like flexible and dynamic. Um, but this requires this compromise, basically. Mm. So, yeah, that that helps us think of a, about everywhere where you're raising with the right hand, what's happening with the left hand and what's the direction that the sword is going. And mm. then seeing if there's a way that you can facilitate um, the motion that you want the sword to go with not having the left hand stop it. So like yeah, the first exactly. thing that comes to mind is like the, the relay races where you don't have the, the next person you're relaying to is not stopped. They're starting no. to run a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly this. Yeah. And uh, you know, catas like number five as well, have got a certain aspect of this that you, you can't draw up to here, wait for the left hand to catch up and cuts because you end up with two separated cuts. But similarly, the left hand can't, chase too much otherwise you end up chopping your hand off at some point here um it needs to kind of be right in time without the sword stalling at the top ideally you know it, it a bit like a pendulum at some point in time it does stop but that time that it's stationary is zero somehow that's that's the ideal that we, we want with with those forms as well really mm. Mm. so like i'm gonna ask you on a spot and it's not, not necessarily like uh, a thinking it's a thought exercise just to see, I don't know if it's correct, but if you're thinking about always the right hand's going one way, the sword needs to go the other way. Do you recommend trying moving the left hand like farther so that it's starting to go in the other direction? Like this one's right here. You want the left hand to be going in the direction of the sword to guide mm -hmm. it. So yep. in this case, because it's going opposite direction, would you start that first? I should experiment I and get back to you. <laughs> uh, well, good question. Um, I don't know, to be honest. Because your right um, hand is still going. It's going to stop eventually. Yeah. But if your left hand was already going the other direction, it seems very like your body's going to be split in half trying to do the things, but will that actually... Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know that I've experienced times when my left hand has, has faltered and I've ended up initiating the cut with the right hand and caught afterwards. Hmm. Doesn't it, to be honest, it doesn't feel like an optimal cut. So I, I think where we've got distinct changes in direction. So this happens in my, for example, at first the sword's going back and up and then there is a change of direction. So it's fine for the left hand to statically grab at that point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to dock 
and, and catch it, doesn't have to match velocities. I think Kesagidi as well, because this is going to change direction at some point, mm, okay. that's the moment where it should catch. Uh, so, uh, although I should say, just to be clear, um, again, this is purely my understanding of what I've been taught, not necessarily what's written in the Sete manual. The right hand is the important cutting grip on the downward cut. The left hand doesn't actually have a standard kirite grip. Otherwise, you'd end up with your with one shoulder like this. So it's important the left hand is guiding. It doesn't need to actually generate the cut. So it could be what you're saying. At speed, could work, possibly. Mm. Yeah. I just like um, enjoying this conversation, talking from the physics perspective. One is like it's going mm. one direction and it will continue going in that direction. But in like for Mai or Kesagiri, it's changing to the pretty much the opposite direction. Yeah. So the, the thinking behind what your left hand is doing could be different because like what's happening in the uh, sword is different. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose the left hand is going to be changing direction as well, isn't it? That's going up at one point and then coming down at another. Mm. I guess the ideal would be that it chases to the point where just as the sword is rotating in the grip and the scar is now reaching its new position, that's when the left hand stops and catches and cuts. This sounds like a, a good elimination of any waiting time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You see, it's much more interesting doing this, I find, than talking about how you should fight imaginary enemies and and introduce this kind of accelerated timing this kind of fine fine examination is not only more interesting i think it's also much more productive mm -hmm. yeah. and that's kind of how i've been taking like we'll somehow sometime we'll talk about the iceberg model but it's breaking down um what is our checkpoints so if you're doing a kata doing with a real life opponent that will tell you what you need to work on in the physical stuff so every so often, go do a, uh, an exam, go do a taikai, full, full spirit and all that stuff. But something's going to go wrong. You're never perfect. So yeah. by doing it that and not having to think about technique and seeing what breaks down, then you can just, okay, I'm going to extract this, I'm going to extract this. And now I'm going to spend 90% of my time doing that. Mm. Just like uh, in sports, like most of the time you're not in competition. You're either doing weight training or you're doing drills or you're doing practice. And then at that one point, and like all of that buildup is for the like the real aspect of it. So having an opponent, that's the real stuff, but you're not on, on that all time every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of, um, do you know, David Beckham, the football player? Hmm. Yeah. So uh, I've probably got going to get this completely wrong and somebody's going to write <laughs> and comment on the YouTube link and say Andy's talking out of his rear end. But uh, as I understood years ago, he focused on his uh, 30 meter um kick into the goal he said and he just became an expert at getting 30 meters from the goal and reliably always scoring a goal and he he worked really hard on this and all the rest of the stuff was like well I'll, I'll, that can be just my normal training but i'm gonna make sure that if i get within 30 meters of the opponent's goal i will never miss a kick it might be stopped by another player but i'll never miss getting it between the two goalposts mm -hmm. uh, and this is kind of that really isn't it it's like well you know there are important things that, that a game uh, can lose the game for you or win the game for you. Better to be good at those, really. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking about timing. We wanted to talk about the demystification stuff. So mm. are you okay ending Sete here at number seven? We can pick yeah, it up later and then let's move into... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, so this this was quite a, a difficult blog post to write when I wrote it. Um, 
but I was kind of getting I have been for, for years actually but during lockdown as you know we've been doing this Andy's Andy's Nihongo Corner been trying to um, lift the level of Japanese language amongst um, the Budo community of, of my friends um, and part of it is I guess a good outcome is that people get to understand some of the sort of language that we use in Budo so, and they start to realize the mundanity of it, of it as well that you know we when you think of kata names in karate for example a lot of them sound very mystical and and they are I mean and in some of the Koryu kata names as well there also also sounds you know things like floating cloud and waves breaking amongst the rocks and it's very poetic and it, it evokes this kind of image that you think I've got to incorporate that somehow into my kata I'm not saying that that's not valid I think that's good but there is also as, as you know most of EI is made up of mundane words like nukitsuke draw and apply or apply the draw there's nothing kind of mystical about it it's just a description of a word uh chiburi swing swing the blood noto put the sword away it's it's nothing special um and i i think that's you know our martial art is constructed out of and taught to a high degree uh, in the language that it the, from the country it originates from, which is Japanese. So, so having some understanding of this is, is important. And um, the, the reason for my writing that post was that I was still feeling that people were uh, attaching over significance to, to some Budo terminology. Um, uh, I won't go into sort of too specific details about this, but you know, the the main point is that, and I made some notes earlier, is that a lot of the terminology we use in Budo are not Budo specific. They they come from other walks of life, and they've been been stolen by Budo to try and give some context and some kind of teaching methodology. And at some point, they've taken center stage, and I think that's that's wrong. Uh, I I don't see that same uh, mythology in a lot of much more traditional koryu actually uh so as most people know katori shintaru kind of claims to have this unbroken lineage back to uh the sort of the, the feudal period um I, I don't know that much about it but i've always been interested in katori shintaru and, and as, I, as i understand it there isn't a huge amount of this kind of terminology used that we tend to use in eido um it's it's a very very practical and direct approach about cutting, blocking, moving. Um, and, and to give some examples of this, of how we've imported some of these, um, and I have to caveat here, there are almost certainly people in our community who know much more about this than I do. Uh, draw Haku is, is a good starting point, and, and this has been uh, kind of converted into slow, fast, faster, to, to indicate there's some kind of acceleration well, that's good. You, you could just say to people, you need to accelerate instead of kind of talking about Johaku. Uh, it actually comes from, as I understand, it comes from the theatre, specifically North Theatre. Um, and actually, it's not used originally as any description of movement. It describes the way the story unfolds, that you have a setting uh, in the story arc, you have a setting, a breaking of the, of the setting, and then a kind of crescendo towards the end. Um, nothing to do with the way people move but it's also been used in North theatre to also describe how actors should move so you've got like a, a fractal uh, microcosm of this is the entire story arc 
then gets condensed into individual movements. This is fine, but we should remember that it's an imported term. It's, it's not uh, specific to Budo. And in fact, I would say that the slow, fast, faster, the way I've been taught it in the Ido is not actually accurate either. That it's much closer to the original. Jaw means setting. So this means that you're, for example, in Mai, you're sat in Caesar, you're aware of your scenario, but you're also ready for anything. So that it kind of links in very nicely with this tsune, tsune ni deku ni oasu. Uh, always be natural, but quick to adapt. So this is jaw. You're not just sat there relaxed, floppy. You're still ready, even if you're static. Ha means this change, this breaking. So this means at some point you make a decision to, to initiate the attack. Uh, and this can be done slowly in some catas, can be done quickly in other catas, but there's this point where you go, I've got to start moving. I've got to, uh, there's a, a, a mind change which says I've now got to defend myself or I've got to preemptively counterattack. Counter and then Q, this means suddenness. So this is really um, the only part of that three-point term that says anything about speed. So to say it means slow, fast, faster, well, it doesn't. It doesn't say that at all. Only Q means sudden speed fast whatever you want to um to read this 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 kanji for isogu uh yeah isogu to, to hurry so this would actually suggest that on first reading there is no sudden there is no gradual acceleration it's just fast i don't suggest that that's what we should do but um i think the the, the, the misapplication of jaw haku might make you teach your students forever that the earlier part of the kata has to be done slowly. Well, uh, I don't really see this all the time in if you watch um, the All Japan Taikai or watch some really nice Enbu from high level um, uh, sensei. Some katas do not start uh, with a gradual acceleration, they leap on you. And you, of course, in Seite, this is a much more standardized set. But I don't think um, that suddenness is exclusive throughout all of Seite. I think there are, of course, Nukyuchi, the last one. The word Nukyuchi itself means suddenness as well as several other different things. Um, you know, th there is no gradual acceleration. It's fast. Yeah. Don't rush. I, I don't chop your shoulder off. The, yeah. the one thing about Johaku right now, that like immediate thing that stands out, if you were to read those Japanese terms or understand the original, the origin of it, is that when you say slow, faster, fastest, you feel like the word Joe and the word Ha and the word Q are kind of linked together in some way that they kind of mean just a progression of the next thing. When in fact, each word means a is like describes a completely different um, concept. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And knowing that helps you to get to the last bit, the Q part. But the other two bits are not related to speed, but they prepare you for it. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, there's this word you, again, you probably know, jumbi preparation. Uh, this is jaw. It, and this means preparation without any visible movement. This is important. And like you said, it's not related to doing it quickly. It's not part of fat, fast movements to do with static preparation. So it's important to know that and, and not think it just means three degrees of speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think this really deserves either a more of a blog post kind of thing is to really outline all the other ways that it's applied in everyday life. 
Like when I hear the word Junbei, it's like, oh, get ready for bed. So, okay, I'm going to go brush my teeth or Junbei for cooking. Okay, I need to gather all my recipes together. Or you could use it in a race. So get ready for a race, get to the starting line, blah, blah, blah. So it can mm. so many different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, impo it's important, I think, uh, uh, in, in EI as well, which kind of is based upon this idea of sudden movement, um, this you know this understanding of preparation is so key um i, th I know for example in uh, in shindenryu and aishimyu we've got this set called chuden in the middle uh, hasegawa aishimyu and you know you're set, set in tazahiza and these are all calling for sudden movements and when i get asked these questions about you know i'm having trouble getting up and i, I can't move very fast here and it's like well it's because you're trying to get up from from zero and you shouldn't start from zero. You should start from something. Um, so it, it's it's more than just just kind of racing to get up. It's it's there's a significant chapter that's that's there, almost as important as the zanshin that happens at the end of the kata. You know, once all the killing's been done, we've got this important section. Well, before any of the attacks start, there's also another important section. Yeah. So let's if we. Um, I don't know if you have some other notes, but I have like a question that I would love to kind of dive into is like, if we're talking about Joha Q, breaking it down into those three terms, um, Joe, I, I, I don't recognize that character very much. So I, I don't know much. So I would love to hear more about that. Ha, you also see Ha in Shu Hari and mm. there's no acceleration there. Like what, what is, what other ways can you think about Ha? And then Q really is mean speed, but like, how else can we think about it? I don't know if you've have some notes on that or you thought about more deeply. Uh, about um, each, so, breaking down each individual term. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess my shohato is really the best illustration of, of those three. Um, so as I said, you know, the, the, the jaw, the, the setting is um, not only doing this physical preparation of getting the, the hips a little bit and the, and the thighs a little bit tight. So you're not, you don't sit on your heels with all your weight, but you're slightly buoyant. And although your upper body's relaxed, you're not unaware of where your hands are. You're, you, you can feel your hands and your thighs. You know exactly where they are without looking. Metsuke's, well, this is slightly, uh, again, depends on the teacher, this understanding of Enzen or Metsuke. Um, not just oh, not just kind of staring off into the future, into the into the onto the horizon. You, what you should actually be doing is trying to focus your eyes where you think the enemy is, because otherwise you tend to launch yourself into an attack and um i found this with so i'm going going slightly off off piste if that's okay mm -hmm. uh there's a, a qualitative difference when you do scarte and you do the final cut between just cutting into the sunset and visualizing the opponent being quite close and cutting on the spot and you, almost certainly you'd be able to, if you if you experimented with asking people to visualize this differently you could video them and I'm sure, and I haven't done it yet, I'm sure you would see a, a movement difference, but there's certainly a, a, an impact difference and a qualitative difference in the way that cut's done. And this is important in uh, in the first few moments of Mai that you don't just have your eyes just blurred off and not really focusing on anything, but you actually visually and mentally concentrate on somebody who's supposed to be sitting that right distance away. And that stops you from lunging. It stops you from throwing your arm out. It sets you into this proper this uh, 
it uh, subconsciously informs your body where you need to go to. You don't have to kind of spend a lot of mental effort restricting your movements. You just think they're just there. And that nicely leads, leads you into the ha part, the yaburu part, the, the breaking, where you're now aware, without getting too much into metaphysical um, castle techie stuff, which I also don't have too much time for, but you're now aware that this person sat close. You can't afford to kind of grab, stop, then draw. It's really urgent that if you do anything, it's got to be subtle at the beginning, and then it's got to be building to kind of give a message, stop trying to attack me. And then it, it then leads into that cue part, which is I've got no choice now. Not only am I breaking, going from Caesar into a preparation stage, I then got to make another break where I make a decision that I'm now going to attack them. I'm not going to give them any more warnings. So this ha exists from the moment the ha stage starts all the way to the point where it finishes. There's a, there's a, there's a, a series of has going or breaking of, of agreements in your mind, breakings of physical preparation and going on to the next stage. Mm. So if I give you a, a common scenario and a common instruction that if we use this definition, it's not quite right, is there could be someone that does too sudden a draw, like we, someone early on is just like this. And the most common instruction is, is I see a Joe and I see a Q, but there's no hard acceleration piece to it. Um, if we use this kind of understanding of Joe Q, what is actually going on there when someone is like grabs and then just goes, and then there's no like that kind of that build up or whatever feeling. Uh, I, my, my shot from the hip answer is that there, there isn't even any jaw at that point either, mm. because if you're not aware of, of your surroundings and, and where the opponent is actually located, um, then you will just lunge at them. And I think that's, you, you know, this takes a bit of time to develop this, this kind of awareness that you could die, which is an important thing to kind of keep in some part of your mind when you're doing AI, that you're not just throwing yourself uh, like a kind of suicide rush. The idea is to, to survive the encounter as well. That happens at jaw. And I think if, if people spend more time working on this jaw aspect, mm -hmm. then that middle bit that you said, which is missing, uh, I think that that will happen if jaw is, is already there, if it's well-developed. Um, it's, you know, even, even though I think the Q stage doesn't need to be focused on if jaw and ha are well-developed, they, they almost like do one, and the next do it well and the next one happens automatically get these two done and the next one is a natural output because q as as i'm sure you know it doesn't just mean speed but it means suddenness well this isn't this doesn't re require necessarily muscles to be working hard it requires everything to be done all the preparation to be done all of the setting to be optimized all of the angles to be set before you kind of finalize that cut mm. I, I want to just re reiterate what you just said, because to me, like those are pretty breakthrough ideas, like just for my thinking, at least too, is that um, when someone doesn't have a ha or in a traditional sense of fast, slow, faster, fastest, like when they don't have the faster part that bridges those gap, it's not that part that's missing. It's the preparation, the Joe part mm. that's missing, which is like really cool. And then this other piece that, um, that, you just mentioned is that you don't need to control the cue if you have the Joe and the ha part right. The cue will just yes. happen. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's that um, uh, 
I, I don't know which martial art it kind of grew in, but it's this idea that uh, technique is first and speed and power are an output of correct technique practice. That's really the the entire idea of a systemized martial arts system, uh, not specifically to Eastern martial arts, to any martial arts, mm -hmm. that you develop technique first and all speed and power comes out of that. And you, you can't reverse that equation. You can't start with speed and power and expect technique to grow. In fact, the reverse will happen. Technique will get worse. Uh, it's, it's about repetition of correct technique first. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, so we have 10 minutes left. Do you have another term that you wanted to review? Yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple, I guess, uh, although I don't, I, don't, I don't know what dwell on any of them too long because they're basically semantics. Um, so Mehdi Hadi, I think, has been, uh, I mentioned this in the in the blog as well, and I know that's been talked about uh, for some years where uh, I think it was Yamazaki Sensei first said it. He was a very senior Aishimu uh, 8th Dan Hanshi in, in the Zen Kenren. Uh, really nice EI practitioner, really nice teacher, awful to translate for. He would talk for like five minutes and then look at me and say, hey, dozo. It's not a translation problem. I've got a memory problem now. But uh, he, I think he was the one that first kind of expressed it. And then it became a little, a little bit of like, oh, we've got to work on Mehdi Hadi. Well, Mehdi Hadi is also not really anything exotic. It's, it's, a, it's a, um, a compound verb, meru to... Uh, Let's get this right. Meru to contract and haru to, to stretch. So this is just basically it put together. This means um, modulation. And this is actually much more relevant to music than it is to, to Buddha, really. Uh, Yamazaki sense they used it in the context of almost like Johaku, which was he was saying that people were basically, they were one tone. All of their katas were one, were one tone, which was everybody's going fast or everybody's going mediocre speed or everybody's going slowly and there's no kind of change. There's no tempo change. Um, and, you know, I think this is a, the right way to kind of interpret Medihadi, which is you're monotonous. Your, your, your speed of your catcher is monotonous. What about some, some realism? What about some, some subtlety in there as well about kind of observing the opponents and choosing the best time to attack rather than just launching yourself on the person. But that's it. I don't think it needs anything more than this. It's, I, I quite like the idea of um, teaching EI without having to refer to Japanese terminology because I, I think for some people it's, it's a, a cover that if they're not able to articulate clearly what they want to teach, they'll just kind of shroud it in mystical sounding language. And I, as as you probably guessed from, from our interactions, I really am heavily opposed to this because I know that a lot of this Japanese words are mundane. They're, there's nothing special about them. Um, and they're not even original in, in Budo. And a lot of them are new, they're newly imported and they, they become the center point of focus because they're said by a high grade. And I, I'm pretty sure that those high grades never intended those things to become the, the central focus is like it's a comment that was made and everybody went oh Mary Harry what's that well <laughs> it just means contrast nothing spiritual about this nothing metaphysical it's just that there are other things to focus on as well yeah so um part of that I feel like I'm just guessing out here is that um if we're talking about the difference between applying more scientific approach, more this kind of thinking, and 
I guess, a traditional way where you kind of join a dojo, you just practice. And if you practice young, the sword will teach you, your movements will teach you, you're watching, it'll just kind of, you don't know, like an expert practitioner doesn't know how they do expert things. They just do it. It just happens. And at some point, like if you're a musician too, Merihari appears. But if it was brought up at a seminar like this, and then like people that want to say, how do I practice this? It's not like, it's not a specific application of modulation. I don't, it's not like I'm going to go slow here and I'm going to go fast here. I'm going to go slow here. It's actually something else. Like we were saying earlier with CNC is like, you notice something up ahead and then you work backwards to see what is physically happening inside your body that you can play with to create this, um, this feeling. So I don't know if you have any thinking around that right now and like, how do you break it down and how do you kind of consider creating this without actually just actively going slow and going fast and changing mm. your timing? I have a, a an experience example. And this was something that Shido Sensei uh, taught years ago. And, you know, he's never used this kind of terminology before, like Mary had. He just basically puts the scenario in front of you and says, this is what you're trying to achieve. I know that there's this technical framework that you're supposed to do, but basically, and, you know, there's a description of the scenario with an enemy coming towards you. He said, this is basically what you're, what this means. It's, it's, there's more detail than what's written in the manual or what's, what's normally taught. Uh, and a good example of this is uh, after the ski in Murotazuki, when you turn to do these two overhead cuts. And what he said, and, and what is, I've seen, I've heard this being taught by other high-grade senseis as well, is that this cut, Kiriyoroshi, that you do is not just Kiriyoroshi. It, it's, it's not the assumption that the opponents are just standing there waiting for you conveniently to cut them, but they're coming towards you and they're trying to cut you as well. So this becomes uh, what kendo practitioners when there was kiriotoshi slightly different means that they're trying to cut and your sword is supposed to intercept the, theirs cut the opponent and knock their sword off course at the same time or force their sword down or force their sword to the side but you have to dominate the center line to do this and what it means is that you can't afford an ayuchi where both of them synchronize because randomly one of you will win and you don't want a random win you want a, a decisive win so basically your sword needs to be advanced more than theirs is you need to be in a greater state of preparation when it hits their sword to do that means that you've got to take away the timing from your opponent assuming that the opponent's not standing right behind you and just goes bash that they're some distance away from you they're going to move in towards you there's a little bit of distance a little bit of time taken and what you want to do is they're anticipating, for example, this is only an example, they're anticipating taking, say, two step cuts. So left foot and then a right foot from hassle and then cut. In the time that they move into hassle, you've got to wait for them first to start moving into hassle. You do, do you take a one step cut, close the distance with a bit of a kuriashi, a little, a little bit of hikitsuke, and you're on them before they can get the sword significantly through their cut. To do that, you've got to calculate the right time to do this. So as you turn, you've now got to do a multitude of things. You've got to visualize where the opponent is. You've got to visualize what position they're in. Uh, you've then got to think, when are they going to go? Are they waiting for me to do something? So not that the cata calls for you to stop and wait, but in terms of playing with the cata and trying to get a, a sense of this timing, there shouldn't be any problem with stopping visualizing and then going now or starting to gradually move towards them 
and then go, you coming, coming now. And just playing with this, this idea of timing rather than it just being a sequence where you turn, step, cut. Don't think that's, you know, this is good for setting basic practice, but um, there's got to be some movement on from that. Now, this makes it sound like you're experimenting with theatre, but there's other, there's other things that you're supposed to be doing within this time. For example, you could turn, step, and step back and cut. You could turn, take one step forward, shuffle back and cut. You have to be able to do that at any point during that movement. You, you can't launch yourself. It's not like archery or darts. This is like parking a car, but quickly. So <laughs> you could now get this idea that there's all these things that you're supposed to be concentrating on. And these all take time to accumulate and, and, and kind of become competent at doing them. This is how I think over years of practice, you have to, you have to kind of embed these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it really shows like if, if Medihari is about um, different timings or showing like a modulation and you don't practice the different ways that you could do it, then your body wouldn't know, your mind doesn't know that there are different ways of doing it. And so when you're in a scenario, um, it won't it won't change. Like you, you'll just be doing right. it at one point. But yeah. part of this is like up until this point, like uh, in one way, CNC is about training the mind to be aware of all this other stuff. In this way is also training the body to be able to move in these different aspects when the mind imagines like a different scenario. So yeah, this totally helps me kind of think about how to do manihari without purposely doing it. It's like, let's create a different scenario. Your body will know what to, what to do at that, ca that case. Like, you know what it means when a car is rushing to you as opposed to one that's stopping at a stop sign for you to pass. So your body will react. And then mm. once you've practiced it enough times, these different ways, um, when it comes to the actual kata, you can know the difference between, I just skied the person in front, so he's no longer an issue, but the person behind is. So then there's going to be a different urgency with what I'm doing up front and what I'm doing behind. And right. they'll naturally show up when you're doing the full kata all at once. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And well, you know, all of this is kind of encapsulated in stuff we already know about, this idea of kuniyawasu to suddenly adapt. That means something to us, right? It's like it's not it's not just words, it's all of your iido is not about just being good at the forms, but becoming competent physically competent through the training of the forms as so that you can change what you're doing at any time. Cool. Speaking of Time. change what you're yes. doing at any time and time yeah it's time yeah all right um great. this was great let's try to find another time to continue this discussion good speaking to you patrick right. good Thank to see you so much see, see you soon later. take care bye, bye.